So, as I said, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 today. So the issue, the one that we're dealing with in dealing with elders, is important. Simply because there are truths surrounding this one office that aren't normally thought about or thought through. Today we're actually going to be thinking about the why of this office. We're going to deal with the list of things that are stated that this person who holds this office must have in their life. And then finally, we're going to actually look at what it looks like for them to be performing this office well and what that looks like. First, what we're dealing with is important because we're dealing with nothing less than the very essence of the bride of Christ, which is the body of Christ. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, just to grasp how important the church is to God. He said, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And that he that is spoken of is God the Father, who puts all things in subjection under his, that is, Jesus' feet. And it's to Jesus that the Father has given all things to, because he's the head, and he's done it for the church, which is his body. And it's he, Jesus, that is the fullness of God the Father who fills all in all. And what is being said here is that a true biblical church is the physical manifestation of Christ in this realm. And that everything that God does in this physical realm is done for the church. This is how important the body of Christ is to God. And this is what we're thinking through today. The church and its leadership that God has ordained for his church. Again, his church, his leadership. God ordained an office that he called elder. And then he gave people that he ordained for that office duties, which can be summed up in this one statement, oversee my church. How? How is this done practically? Well, we're told that in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. So since we're told that these people will be held accountable for these requirements, this must mean that they have to know who they are responsible for and to in fulfilling these requirements. We all understand this practically, because if you're hired to be a cashier by Dollar General, you know that you're only working for Dollar General, that you're not responsible for all the cash registers in the city. And even then, you know as a, cash or a cashier at Dollar General that you're responsible for a single cash register, not for all of them. We understand this. If there's no requirement to belong to a local body of Christ, as many within modern evangelicalism say is true, then why this office? And especially, why these requirements? And in that Hebrews 13, 17 verse that I, that I just quoted, there's an eternal responsibility that can't be overstated placed on that person called an elder. Listen again to Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Is there anything more important than your souls? So that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. The first thing that we need to understand from this verse is that elders, all elders, they're just sheep, just like all the rest of the sheep. And that every elder is nothing more than a member of the flock. And the command is given there in Hebrews 13, 17, is given to all the sheep of God, including elders. And you're thinking, but if an elder is the leader, then who is their leader? The same leader for all the sheep. The Word of God 
and the body of God. They, elders, are supposed to be submitted to the word of God and obedient to it. And they are under the direction and the oversight of the church as a body, just as the rest of the body is supposed to be under the oversight of the body. And all 15 of the qualifications that are stated in 1 Timothy 3 are nothing more than a summation that is the requirement that is made and given to us in Hebrews 13, 17. And those requirements given in 1 Timothy 3, they all answer one question. Is that person who's being considered to be an elder, are they submitted? Are they obedient? Submit. Obey. We in our culture, we don't like either one of those terms. We really don't. Which is the root issue for those that say that they can't find biblical evidence to support church membership. Because at the heart of the issue for them is always an issue of the heart. And that issue for them is control and power. They don't desire to submit. And they don't desire to be accountable for anyone or to anyone. But what about us? The question that I want to ask us now is, do we actually hold the office of elder as important? Do we really think that having biblically qualified elders is important? Be careful before you answer yes, though. Because most of us have either been an athlete or know an athlete. And because of this, we know that athletes that desire to perform well, to get better at their sport, they're going to seek a coach. Someone who has been in their shoes before. Someone who has more knowledge or skills than they do. Someone who will help them to get, to get better, to move forward, and perform better. And in every instance, a coach will tell that person, you must give things up. You must change things in your lives. You must sacrifice if you desire to get better like you say that you do, to do better. And for those athletes that desire those things, they submit and they obey. I mean, you think about those high school football players that do two-a-days in the hot summer sun, forsaking going to the beach, forsaking sleeping in, forsaking hanging out just so that they could become lean, mean, football-playing machines. Or think about the Olympic athlete, whose entire life is geared around whatever sport it is that they are doing. Everything in their life is centered around and focused in on becoming better at whatever that sport is that they're, they're, that they're doing. And they desire to become a better athlete, or they desire to make the team that they're part of better, so they submit and obey. But how many of us have this same mindset? If having biblically qualified elders is important, then why is it that we don't seek the counsel of our elders concerning our life? Why, why do we not ask them about our personal disciplines how we handle money, what we watch. Why is it that within the church that we have determined that they aren't qualified to help us determine what direction our life should actually be pointed to? That's none of their business. Two reasons. The first is that we have disconnected our life with Christ from this life in this world. And we don't think that one has any bearing on the other. Even though we're told in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. And the second reason that we don't go to the elders and ask them is because we know that if we do, because they are accountable for our souls, they're going to make recommendations for our life that we don't want to hear. 
We don't really want godly counsel. We want a life coach. Someone who will affirm us in our desires instead of pointing us towards Christ and telling us to make the church and the things of God our priority and actually live that way. Ask yourself this, is that high school athlete, that person who will never play their sport after they get out of high school, are they more dedicated than we are? Even though we are told that we are to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Hebrews 12.1, even though God says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And when, when is it that we will finally go seek the counsel of the elders? When the wheels on the bus fall off. When things finally get bad enough in our life or in our marriage, that's when we will then go seek counsel from the elders. And more often than not, even then we're not willing to submit and obey. Because we are Americans. And we are free. And we want to be me. And we've been sold a bill of goods that tells us that we can do that and still be a true Christian. And you're thinking, hey, wait a minute. I thought this was going to be a sermon about elders. (laughs) I thought that we were going to be looking at the qualifications that are given for them. And we are. But before we can get to that place, we need to determine if this office actually even matters to us, or is this just all a matter of semantics? Is it just words? Are we really seeking to become more like Christ in our lives, or are we just little children playing at tea parties? Do we really desire to be conformed more into the image of Christ? Because we who hold to the office of elder and to church membership, we expect that they, those people, those elders, that they are going to take the word of God seriously in their life. But do we? Listen again to that Hebrews 13, 17 verse. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that... They will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. Why should you seek counsel from your elders concerning your life? Because they're responsible for the state of your soul. And have you ever even asked yourself, am I a joy to my elder? Have you ever even thought about that? That's the second part of that Hebrews 13, 17 verse. You're, going to be, you're actually supposed to bring bringing joy to that person who's held accountable for your soul by obeying and submitting the word that they are supposed to be obedient and submitted to. And then that verse ends by saying that it will be beneficial for you when you do. So yes, elders must be held to the higher standards. They must. And that standard is the standard which the Lord has given to us. But at the same time, this standard goes for every Christian. And we need to understand that all Christians will be held to the same standards. Elders are not going to be in a separate line from you. Because just like the rest of the sheep, all sheep are expected to submit and obey. And the office of elder is just a sheep that the Lord has called and equipped to be an elder in his church. And that's why the qualification able to teach is given. And what we should actually be looking at at this list as qualifications that are expected for all sheep, not just for elders, because they truly are. Look at the qualifications. Look at the things that the Bible says that are expected of us as Christians, and you will see that they line up precisely with this. What we should be looking at at this list 
is not if they're doing all these things even though we're not, but we should be looking at this list as a means to determine if God has uniquely called and equipped this person, this sheep, for this office. So before we begin digging into 1 Timothy, ask yourself this. Are you holding that person who's an elder to a standard that you're not willing to commit to? If so, then you are thinking that there are regular Christians and then there's super Christians. And that what you're saying is that the Spirit is not given in the same measure to all people. So for us to rightly understand this section of Scripture, we need to make sure that we know the theme of the book that is what it's found in, 1 Timothy. What is the theme of Timothy? That's found in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. They read this, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And he who is manifested in the flesh, who is vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. The theme of this book is the church and the importance of it. This is the central theme of this letter. How Christians who are the church are supposed to act. Not how we are supposed to act in the church, but how we are supposed to act as the church. So every person who is a Christian and every office within the church, they're all centered around that transformational work of the blood of Christ in making us the church. So now we can finally get to verses 1 through 7 of 1 Timothy 3. It reads this way. It's a trustworthy saying, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man doesn't know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside of the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The first qualification in this list is that he should desire to be an elder. This is the unique calling gifted to this man or this person of the Lord. Let me give you a word picture of what that actually looks like. Most of you guys know we have goats, and because of that, we have great Pyrenees. And it surprises us, it amazes us just to watch those dogs do what the Lord has called them and equipped them to do. They protect the flock that they're in charge of. They don't get outside training to do it. They don't wait for somebody to appoint them before they start acting on the calling and the equipping that God has given them. They just do it naturally. And this is the meaning of desiring the office of elder. But there is a difference between someone who's naturally doing what they're equipped to do and someone who covets that office of elder, who just wants a platform, a spotlight. The person who desires to be an elder should do so with great fear and trembling because you are responsible for people's souls. The person who is willing to fight for the right to be an elder should more often than not, not be an elder. So what does this desire look like? It should be made manifest in a great love for the Word of God and a great love for the church of God. And they should be seen doing that which the Lord is preparing for them to do before they're actually appointed to the office of elder. They should be praying and they should be teaching. And this qualification, like all the qualifications given in 1 Timothy and in Titus, they are all in the present tense in the Greek. The qualifications for elder are not based on what a person was like. 
or what they will be like or what they have done or what they will do. And because of the qualifications are all in the present tense, it doesn't matter if they were an elder somewhere before. It doesn't matter if at some point in their life they felt a call to ministry. If they don't desire and are not actively ministering at this point in their life, they're not qualified because they're not meeting the first qualification. In 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, we're given the qualifications for an elder. And there's actually 15 qualifications listed between these two, those two sections of the Scripture. And the majority of them all are encapsulated or under this heading of the second qualification given here, that they are above reproach. And for this reason, I'm going to spend more time than any other fleshing this one out. Above reproach. That speaks to the character of the person being considered for eldership. But what does that mean, above reproach? Because we really need to think this through. Because if you look at this list and you read this list rigidly, there's only one man who ever lived who can qualify to fill these things. And it's the man that we're all supposed to strive to be after, to look like, to imitate. And let's face it. Every one of us has varying shades of what above reproach means. For the writers of the Oxford Dictionary, they define above reproach in this manner. They said that above reproach is such that no criticism can be made, semicolon, perfect. And by this definition, this qualification disqualifies all people. And practically speaking, this qualification above reproach, that's a moving target. What does above reproach actually mean? Well, let's look at some of those check marks that we can use in determining if a person is above reproach or not. So in qualifying an elder, would we say that a person who has an active addiction to nicotine, would they be above reproach? Well, if not, R.C. Sproul would be removed from the office of elder he was addicted to nicotine for most of his adult life. How about being a slave owner? If you're a slave owner, you can't be above reproach, right? Well, that would disqualify George Whitfield from being in office, being in office an elder. But you're thinking, no, no, it's, it's personality traits. That's what we're really talking about here, though. A man who is moody, hard to deal with, hard to get along with, who's kind of prickly and maybe speaks sharply, they can't be above reproach, right? Well, that would disqualify Jonathan Edwards, who is said to be moody and a recluse and didn't desire to be hospitable. A trait that's listed in verse 2 as part of being above reproach. And John Calvin would also be disqualified. He was said to be cold and humanly unapproachable. But Above reproach, that just means that they've got to fit our definition of what a good spouse and a good parent is. That's above reproach. Well, that would disqualify Jonathan Wesley. He rarely was ever home. Home long enough to make kids, but he was hardly ever there to train them up. His wife did all the training of his children because he was out sharing the gospel. Well, Above reproach. Okay, so it's obvious the person who drinks alcohol frequently, who's crass, who's not above making bombastic slurs and using coarse languages, and well, he's, kindly, he's kind of foul in his bodily functions. That person, they're not above reproach, right? Well, there goes Martin Luther. How about a person who could be violent? They can't be said to be above reproach. After all, I mean, that's one of the, the two of the things that are listed are being pugna or not pugnacious and, and peaceable. Well, that would exclude Zwingli. Above reproach. That would mean that a man that is an elder or that person who is an elder, that they would not fear man. And they would most certainly not ever forsake the clear teaching of the word of God because of fear of man, Right? Well, that would disqualify Peter. Remember the rebuke he received from Paul? And all of these men that I just listed, every one of them was an elder. While they had these qualities, 
But that didn't mean, however, that they did not always, they weren't always in a fight to mortify their flesh. If you look at their testimonies, they bear witness to the fact that they were. And the point being made here was we must always remember that all people, even the one the Lord will use mightily, they're nothing more than mere mortals with clay feet. And we must hold them to the high standard that God has set. We must, because this is his church, the most important organism ever created. And we must hold them to his standard and not ours. We need to make sure that before we qualify or disqualify a person for this office, based off of our feelings or even what is culturally acceptable or what we have been taught, We need to make sure that we are obedient and submitted to the Word of God because perfection is not the standard set by God. So what is? They are supposed to be one who can say like Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. They're supposed to be people of faith. And that word faith is used more than 15 times in 1 Timothy It's the single thing that is stressed more than any other in this book as the attribute of the life that is given over to the Lord. But the best litmus test, the best understanding, the best means that we can understand what above reproach means is to look how else it's used. Lucky for us, it's only used, this word that is translated as above reproach here is only used three times in the Bible. And all three times are listed in this letter. The first is here, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. And the second is when Paul is telling Timothy about contributions made to the widows in chapter 5. After telling Timothy how a true widow in the Lord lives, he says in chapter 5, verse 7, and the command, command these things as well so that they may be above reproach. What he is saying is that poor lady who has lost her husband, who now has no means of visible support, for them to be able to receive support from the church, she is expected now to have her life examined and be found living to the same standard as that elder. How can she do that? That's fleshed out in two places. The first is in verse 5 of chapter 5. When Paul says, she who is a widow indeed and who is in left, has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in petitions and prayers night and day. She has fixed her hope on God, which means that she's obedient and she's submitted and she prays. But the best explanation of what above reproach, what that actually looks like, can be found in the third and final time that the word is used. In chapter 6, verse 14, there Paul is commending Timothy continue to meet the qualification of an elder, Timothy. So I'm going to read verses 12 through 16 so we can get what he says in context. First, he says to Timothy, chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Again, what's Paul speaking of? Faith, and a life given over to the Word of God. And in verse 13, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and who gives life to all things and the Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Verse 14, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach. There's the third time that word is used. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal might forever. Amen. And what commandment is it that Paul is speaking about here? He says, keep the commandment. That commandment is found in 1 John 3, 23. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he gave a commandment to us. Above reproach is defined 
in Timothy and in the Bible as a life given over to faith, one who is submitted to and obedient to the word of God. You see, because cultural circumstances and standards, they change, they ebb, and they flow. But what doesn't is the obedience to the word of God, and that does not change or ebb or flow. And Paul and Timothy, they lived with the expectation that Christ was coming soon. And their lives demonstrated the reality that they obeyed that commandment given to them by Christ and faithfully submitted to it. So this then brings us to the third qualifier, probably the one that has had the most ink spilled over it in this past century. This elder, whoever they are, they must be the husband of one wife. And it's on this qualifier that we're going to delve into the operation and function of the Greek language in which this text was actually written. And the reason is this, is that in this one qualification, half of the population are excluded. Not because of sin or of spiritual gifting. Because the Greek words for this qualification are andre mios gynekos. The Greek language doesn't operate like our language does. There's not two separate words for husband and man. There's only one. And that word, Andre, is used for both of them here. And that word isn't ambiguous, though. It has a distinct meaning concerning the gender of the one that it is speaking of. And it always speaks about a male, a man, a person who has a single X chromosome and a single Y chromosome, never two X chromosomes. And from this qualifier, we now know that God has set a gender qualification for elder. Unfair, you may think? Sexist? You need to take that up with God. And which one of us actually desires fair concerning God? I know I don't. I desire and I need grace and I need mercy. I don't need fairness. I don't want fairness. And who is it that created man in the first place? Who created the sexes? It wasn't a human. And whose church is this supposed to be anyway? I mean, if it is a man's church, such as Saddleback, go ahead, make up your own rules. But if it's God's church, we must submit, and we must obey. And then the second word there in the Greek is mias, which means singular, one. And then the third word is gynecus, meaning woman. Again, in the Greek, there's only one word for woman and wife. And the word is always used to describe, always used to describe a female, a woman. Even though the culture doesn't understand what a woman is or what a female is, God does. It's a person who has two X chromosomes. And by the way, this is the root word where we come up with that word gynecology, which is only dealing with people that have two X chromosomes and not just one. So the man, now we know that this is the man. The man who is being looked at as to be an elder should be a one-woman man. Again, which like all of the qualifications given here and in Titus is given to us in the present tense. So if the gender thing now is not enough of a sticky issue to deal with, now we have this marriage thing to deal with. We have this marriage and divorce thing as well. Again, we have many varied human shades of what this qualification actually means. Because there's some people that say that any remarriage is a disqualifier, even if a spouse dies. And what about divorce and remarriage? There are some people that hold that that's not an absolute disqualifier. If the divorce happened because of before salvation, or if the divorce happened because of abandonment or sexual sin, and then the man remarries, then that wouldn't be a disqualifier. But then there are those that claim that this qualifier means that an elder must be a married man. Must be. So what does man of one woman mean? To understand what is being told to us, we must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We must not divorce the text from the context in which it was actually written in. First, it can't mean that a man must be married to be an elder, or Paul would be disqualified. And we're never told that Timothy or Titus are either married. 
So what about divorce and remarriage? That's certainly a disqualifier. I mean, after all, Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 5.31. Done deal. But he said in three verses right before that, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That much pretty much disqualifies every man. And yes, marriage is a sacred vow. Because God is the originator of marriage. And he said, so there are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Matthew 19.6. So is marriage the same as baptism? A once and done thing? Because you can't get re-baptized. You can get wet as many times as you want. You can go and recommit your life as often as you want. But as we're told in Ephesians 4, 5, there's only one baptism. Is it the same for marriage? Honestly, it doesn't matter what you think. What did Christ say? Well, in that Matthew 5, 32 verse that I just read to you about anybody that divorces their wife, and then remarries. He said remarriage. He called remarriage marriage. And he did the same thing in John chapter 4. We hear him interacting with that woman at the well there. And he said to her, go call your husband and come back here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're correct. you said correctly, I have no husband. For you had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly, verses 16 through 18. Jesus could have said, there are Greek words, there are words in Aramaic and in Hebrew. He could have said, you divorced your husband and you have had four illegitimate adulterous ceremonies. Could have said that, but he didn't. He called them her husband's. And then he even acknowledged that there was a difference between those that she had married and the man that she was cohabitating with at that moment. And no, the Lord wasn't disrespecting the institution of marriage because it's the very foundation of the church and the society that God has instituted. And God hates divorce, Malachi 2.16. And we should as well. However, we need to make sure that we are not idolizing it or overemphasizing it more than he is. Because he's doing the same thing here that he did for, the, for polygamy in the Old Testament and slavery in the Old Testament as well. And in the New Testament, there was slavery as well. He knows the substance and our frame. He knows that we are all fatally flawed humans we're sinners at our core. So again, we need to submit and obey the word. And we need to stop romanticizing the past because every one of us, when we read this text, we all believed first century Christians, the same as the people that, were, that lived in 1950s America. They were wholesome. They were clean. Mom and dad, they came, dad came home from work after a long day, kicked his shoes off. Mom gave him a pipe. They all sat down and had dinner together, and the kids loved each other, and they all stayed together, and that was exactly how it was. And that's hogwash. We need to understand the culture that Paul and Timothy were living in, that that culture at that time was probably worse than the one that we're living in. By the time... By this time in human history, the Roman Empire had become so wealthy and life had become so easy and the Eastern lifestyle had become such a prevalent part of their culture that their sexual encounters within this society were so lucid that they make what happened in the Americas in 1960 look tame. In fact, marriage had all but been replaced by just shacking up with people. So much so that Emperor Augustus, who died in the year A.D. 14, again, he died in A.D. 14, he had to enact laws forcing people to get married 
before they could have sex. Making it illegal to have sex unless you were married. Which then brought about a huge free-for-all. Where marriage and divorce was so common that as the historian Seneca said, who was a a pagan contemporary of Paul, that people didn't, if you asked them how old they were, they wouldn't tell you, I'm 30. They would just say, I've had 15 divorces, 16 spouses. And the Jewish world was no better. Divorce was very easy and common in that society. And added to that, the Jews at this time in history had reached back into their history and brought that age-old tradition of polygamy back in. I mean, it was good enough for Abraham and the patriarchs. Got to be good enough for us. And it's against this backdrop the qualification of a one-woman man is given. Remember, this is the first generation of Christians. There were no Christian families. There were no traditions of Christian families, no seminaries. The church was made up of Jews and Gentiles from the pagan, heathen population that lived no better than ours does. And it was from this pool of sinners that God birthed his church and then equipped his elders A one-woman man means that the elder needs to be completely committed to one woman, his wife. And his life with his spouse is supposed to be marked by years of faithfulness and commitment to one another. And this has been the overwhelming understanding of the meaning of this text by biblical scholars throughout the ages. And then the rest of the qualifications of verse 2. They're temperate. Or sober-minded, meaning being able to show restraint. Sensible. This speaks to how a man, his ability to show self-control. Respectable, meaning that they're not overly flashy. Hospitable. Speaks to how they use their homes and the funds that God gives them. Welcoming people to their tables, sharing their goods that they have. And then we're given there, able to teach. And this, along with praying, are the only two job requirements that an elder is required to do. Teach and pray, pray and teach. And the ability to preach, this one qualification stands out from all the other 15. The rest of them all deal with this character. This one doesn't. Listen to how Paul spoke about this qualification in Timothy 1, Titus 1, 9. Sorry. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and reprove those who contradict. And again, faith is at the forefront here, the overarching ruler of this qualification. And this doesn't mean, though, that every elder must be a preacher. And we know this isn't the case because of 1 Timothy 5.17. There, we're told, the elder who leads well are to be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor at preaching the word and teaching. But all elders must be able to teach, but not all elders are preachers. And the good teacher is the one who will exhort the flock in sound doctrine, who's willing to reprove those that contradict, according to Titus 1.9. They will rightly handle the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. Teach doctrine with the power to save, 1 Timothy 4.16. Avoiding irreverent babble and will lead people into, that will lead people into more and more ungodliness, 2 Timothy 2.16. His teaching should be produced in his listeners, repentance and a knowledge of the truth, 2 Timothy 2.25. And then verse 3 of 1 Timothy 3 list these other qualifications. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money. Now, not addicted to wine only means that they're wise in their use of liquor. Pugnacious, the same as violent. It doesn't mean that someone who does jujitsu or karate can't be an elder, because quite honestly, more often than not, those are the most peaceable people. Considerate, peaceable, that speaks to their desire to place others above themselves. Not argumentative, just to be right. And then the last one, free from the love of money. That doesn't mean that they're required to live as a pauper. Only that they live open-handed. 
but they preach the truth as commanded by God concerning how we as Christians handle the things of this world and that their lives are practical lessons on how to do that. In essence, you should know your elders well. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your elders who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. And it's assumed by that verse that if you're serious about your walk with the Lord, that you're going to know your elders. responsibility to do this. That you're supposed to watch them, to learn from them. And then verses 4 through 5 of 1 Timothy 3. There are a couple of assumptions made here. And here are those verses. That they lead their own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. If a man doesn't know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? As we talked about earlier, this isn't concerning things that are in the past. Nor is it licensed to hold a man to that perfect leave-it-to-beaver, perfect family mentality that we can so often fall into. Managing his household well only means that this man is obedient to the Lord, loving his wife, leading her in the Lord, and that he's teaching his children to obey and respect their parents and others, and that he and she, that they are actively the primary teachers of doctrine to their children. This single qualifier here, though, this is the one that speaks the hardest and the most about their moral character and the courage of a man. Because a cowardly man will not lead his house well, will not lead his wife well. They will either be a dictator over their family or they will allow anarchy to reign instead of demanding obedience to the word of God in their lives. And if he's not able or willing to manage his house well, he's not going to lead the family of God well either. And then verses 6 and 7 round out the qualifications found in our verses from 1 Timothy 3. Not a new convert, so that he won't become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside of the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. So the elder can't be a recent convert. No matter how good a teacher they are, no matter how good of a preacher they are, no matter how charismatic they are, no matter how much scripture they memorize, they need to have the word of God in their minds, most certainly. But it must be worked from their minds into their hearts and then seen being fleshed out in their lives. And this takes time. And God is not in a hurry. So young men, if you are told or if you feel a calling to be an elder, understand that God will bring about circumstances into your life that that will allow just the dailiness of life to purge aspects of your old man until you will be able to fulfill the qualifications given here. And the devil is mentioned at the end of both verses 6 and 7. Why? What's God trying to relate to us here? Well, the referencing of him here is to cause us to think back on he, our mortal enemy, the one who goes about like a roaring lion, how he actually works, because he is our adversary, and he is the accuser of the saints, and he will do all that he is allowed to to destroy a church. And a new convert, someone who has not been trained and disciplined by uh, by the Lord, can very often do the same things that Satan did. Desire that which is not theirs. And then twist scripture to appease people and to lead people astray. A new convert, someone who hasn't sat under the discipleship of an elder, they are in danger. In our generation, we think an elder must go to seminary. That's the key to the successful elder, but it's not. Seminary, that's a great tool to teach church history, fundamentals of biblical exposition, historical language of the Bible, but it's not the places where elders are trained. This happens in the church. Elders need to be trained and discipled by other elders. And the more healthy and biblical the training is, the better discipled they will be. And this is why churches plant churches and not people. 
And every church planter needs to be tested in a church, qualified, affirmed by a church, and then sent out by that church to plant a church. So finally, what does an elder actually look like? What do they do? Well, Paul gives us a great example in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Turn with me there. Just go to the, the left a little bit. I always like that the Bible, that God organized the Bible in the T sections. Makes it easy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 4. He says, just as, that we have, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. Again, what is an elder? What is he, the qualification that he must have? He must be submitted to God, and he must fear him. For we never came with a flattering word, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness nor seeking glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we could have been a burden to you, but we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. In this way, having fond affection for you, you, uh, for you we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become beloved to us. Again, an elder must love the body. Not because you are people, but because you are the people of God. You're the sheep of his pasture. Verse 9, For you remember, brothers, also our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses, as so is God, of how devoutly and righteously and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Again, an elder, their life should be an example to the flock of God in faith. This is what you, need to, what you should be expecting from Clayton, from Kevin, and from me. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and bearing witness to each one of you as a father would to his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And they should do this, we should do this, for one reason only, because God has captivated our heart. And our life is supposed to reflect this truth. But saints, we will never do this perfectly, ever. But our lives should be marked by the one who is perfect. These men, any man who's willing to take the office of elder, they must be like Paul and be willing to say, follow me as I follow Christ. If they're not willing to say that, you do not want them for your elder because they are not submitted and they're not obedient. Let's pray.